0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Hello. Hope your day's going well. Good to have you along. Shortly you'll head to the Kimberley where hundreds of hectares of once valuable sandalwood trees are being bulldozed. And that is because there's a property in Kununurra's Ord Valley that's just been bought by Northern Australia Cattle Identity. You'll find out more about that shortly here on the Country Hour. And also today, it is Friday. So this is a really great Friday story. You'll learn about a company that's just been given a state government grant to help it turn second-grade fruit from Carnarvon into alcoholic drinks
2: you know we're talking about being able to use the equipment that the reds has given us to to juice mangoes potentially you know turn bananas into a product as well you know cucumber is a pretty good additive for a flavor component for gins as well so it'll be seasonal and 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 it'll be as much of a surprise as myself to what we get
1: You'll learn more about that project just after news headlines and across to the Bureau just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And timely news for farmers cutting and baling hay at the moment with hay exports to China set to increase after two years of practically being locked out of the market. Since early 2021, about 25 Australian businesses exporting hay to China have been waiting to have their trade permits renewed. And that breakthrough occurred yesterday. In a moment, you're going to hear from Munro Patchett. He is the CEO of Gilmac, Australia's largest hay exporter. First, let's head out to Mark Fowler's place. He's busy baling hay and thrilled the market to China is back to business as usual.
3: China historically has bought around a quarter of our export hay and are a significant customer for our hay. So, look, it projects a lot of confidence into the hay market at a time when we're, we're just cranking up the balers today, actually. And, um, look, the prospects with a strong oat price, and this just bodes well for good hay pricing to match that that, that oat pricing. So, no, it's, it's it's very good news indeed.
2: OK, so how much of a difference do you expect this to make to the bottom line of hay producers in WA?
3: Well, as I said, they historically have bought around a quarter of our hay. They're a significant part of the demand picture for the product that we're exporting into the, in, into those markets. If you take away a quarter of the demand curve, that's obviously going to have a big effect on price. It did, just as with barley, with them coming back to the market, we'd hope to see a a positive response to the to pricing. It's it's kind of a little bit different to to barley. China just didn't renew import licences and and there are some processes that for quite a long time were still able to get some product into China but that was ever diminishing so hopefully they will reissue input licences off the back of this for for all of the big exporters out of Australia and we'll be able to put some more product into that market again and um, you know return to that situation that we had before with them taking around a quarter of our product.
2: How pleased are you that this seems to represent a bit of a thawing of relations is that the way you're viewing this?
3: Oh, I think so. I mean, we saw it with barley. Um, we're seeing it with hay, and I understand timbers the restrictions have been eased there. So, no, I think I think it's, um, it's it's a very positive development. We're seeing, as I said, I'm cutting hay. Sorry, I'm, I've cut hay. We finished cutting hay. We're 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 actually just starting our baling program today. Like a lot of people that grow hay, the oat price is strong, and we're kind of scratching our heads, hoping that we make the right decision, cutting down hay when we've got such a strong oat price. And um, this sort of bodes well to suggest that we're going to, we, we're going to see some strong pricing on, on the hay front as well. The, the supply and demand situation for hay is positive as well, but even without this news. Um, a lot of the, the sheds have been emptied by the exporters. Um, so this is just another, another shot of confidence into the, into the hay market, in which we, we really welcome.
2: And uh, how's the crop looking for this year?
3: Well, you're talking groaning, you're talking hay. Now, talking hay, hay, in our patch, we've had quite good growing conditions through the growing season not as good as probably 21, maybe on a par with 22, but we've had really, really hot weather in the last week. Um, That's going to clearly peel some tonnes off for grain crops, but is very good for, for hay crops. We finished cutting a few days ago. Hot weather like this will make it cure faster. The faster we can get that hay in a bale without any rain on it, the better the quality will be and the more they'll pay for it.
1: Mark Fowler, who's grown hay this season at Tincurran and Dudinan, about 250 kilometres southeast of Perth, and he was speaking to Andrew Collins. Mark's cut about 1,200 hectares of oats for hay this season, and as he was saying, he's just started baling. He did have 1,500 hectares earmarked for hay, but dropped it back a bit for, well, a couple of reasons, uh, agronomic reasons, but also because the price of oats is so good at the moment, at about $425 a tonne. 10 past 12. Well, in 2022, hay exports to China were valued at $78 million, down from $160 million the year before in 2021. Not all hay exporters were affected by the permit renewal issue. So China was still a Australia's third largest export market in 2022, accounting for about 16% of hay exports. Munro Patchett is the CEO of Gilmac, Australia's largest hay exporter. Munro, what a way to end the week.
4: No, it's really good news for the industry, you know, from the farmers in Australia to farmers in China and the exporters. It's, it's, it's quite good news. It just means it's another large uh, outlet for hay uh, from Australia. Uh, there's really only Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. Uh, and now with China back, it's uh, it's very positive for the industry.
1: Now, you were one of the 25 or so companies that didn't have your export permit renewed with China a couple of years ago. What impact did it have on your business?
4: Uh, we had to reduce the amount of hay we contracted with farmers, which we did at an early time, so the hay wasn't grown. We then had to uh, work harder in the existing markets and uh, do our best to sell additional tonnes in, in the current markets to compete with uh, our competitors in Australia and, and also uh, take on the US people and find some new markets, which um, we've done all of those things quite successfully.
1: Which markets did you find?
4: Uh, we've got a little bit of business into Indonesia. and Some of our competitors uh, have got into Vietnam in a reasonable size way and there's um, a current project funded in part by the Australian government to look at other countries uh, to try and expand uh, hair exports from Australia as well.
1: Can you give us an idea, a sense of what this cost you, though, when China didn't renew those permits?
4: Because of the time of year, the seeding was just about to start, so we were able to convince farmers to, to not grow as much hay. So there wasn't a huge oversupply and a huge dumping of prices, which we are all very concerned about at the time. So in actual fact, the industry managed it fairly well, fairly responsibly, prices held up, and uh, people uh, just got on with it. And since then, there's been sort of dry years, and last year was a very wet year in eastern Australia, so there was less hay. So uh, overall, it hasn't had a massive impact on the hay hay export industry.
1: And all licences have been renewed, is that right?
4: No, a few haven't, I think for some technical reasons. Maybe some plants didn't have quite the right procedures and equipment to suit, but the Department of Agriculture in Australia will work with those um, plants to get them uh, licensed if they want to be going forward.
1: But yours is renewed. You're back to business.
4: Yes, most of our sites have been renewed, that's
1: right. Why now? Why has China renewed these permits now?
4: Um, I don't really know. You'd have to to ask them, but uh, I mean the COVID shutdown would have had a massive impact in China and I guess renewing hay export licence wasn't a priority and I suppose I've uh, found time to get around to doing it and so uh, we're back in there. The Department of Agriculture have been lobbying right the way through, and particularly Ray Elson in charge there's been a great lobbyist for the Haynes trying to get back in there. So I think over time it's just come to pass that we're back in.
1: Did you realise the decision was imminent?
4: No, we, we applied for the, we did the paperwork about two or three months ago and we didn't hear anything. Uh, back about that. So, um, no, it's a bit of a surprise.
1: Late yesterday, the Australian government said the trading relationship had been repaired and trade was expected to resume. When does that actually happen?
4: Uh, My understanding is the uh, market for hay is now open. From this point, But our customers or the customers have to apply for import licences, which will take a few weeks. So I imagine you'll see uh, new, new shipments uh, leaving Australia uh, for China in the next uh, few weeks.
1: Is that the plan for your company in the next few weeks, the first shipment out to China in a couple of years?
4: Uh, we'll go pretty slowly. We've got some uh, good traditional markets. We've got to keep supplying. We've got to see how much hay is made this year. It's very dry in the northern, northern part of Western Australia. So there's a lot of paddocks not cut, a lot of low yields there. South Australia is also quite dry, so we are just going to see how much hay we actually get, uh, work out what our traditional customers want, and then go back and talk to our uh, Chinese customers we've had before and, and uh, see what we can do to help them.
1: So Munro, what are your expectations about exports of hay to China this year, going on you know, previous years, and what are your expectations this time round?
4: I think it depends very much on the supply. Before China stopped, they were taking about 400,000 tonnes a year, which was second to Japan, only just second. Uh, I imagine that'll uh, that'll that'll kick off again at a fairly rapid rate of knots, provided the hay is better to support it. They've also started growing a lot of their own domestic hay. So we'll just have to wait and see. It's a bit of a melting pot in last many years' time, and I'll have an accurate answer for you.
1: Now, you mentioned the seasonal conditions, pretty dry in uh, parts of Western Australia in the northern agricultural zone. Um, what about in other parts of Australia where you get your hay?
4: Yeah, so most areas are patchy. So some areas have had really good rainfall. They planted early and they're looking like average to above average yields, looking okay there. And lots of areas are sort of you know well below average to average. So I think overall in Australia the supply will be down from last year.
1: On the country, I'm catching up with Munro Patchett. He's the CEO of Gilmac, the largest hay exporter in Australia. uh, With the news that China has renewed those export permits for Australian exporters to export hay into China after sort of two years of not renewing quite a few of those permits. Now, Munro, when China removed the tariff on Australian barley, the price of barley jumped. So are you expecting the same for oats going to hay? Uh,
4: I would say it will uh, put some upward pressure on the the prices. I mean, at the moment, the renminbi and the Korean won and Japanese yen are, are at very weak levels against the US dollar. So there's a limit to how, how high things can go. But I think there's some scope there for it to go up a little bit. We put our pricing out a few weeks ago and, and uh, it was about 15% higher than this time last year. And we'll be looking to announce our first um, first season top up in the, ne- in the coming days.
1: Well, what price can you expect or are you thinking for oats for hay this season? Because the price for harvested oats is sitting around about $425 a tonne. So growers have to make some decisions about where's the best market.
4: Well, our opening price was two hundred and ten to three hundred in that range, and we'll be stepping that up from, from next week uh, a little bit higher. And I think that um, other exporters will probably be in a similar area. We'll still wait and see what everyone decides to do, what the feedback from the market is.
1: How much hay is in storage right now? Because, you know, that also is probably putting some upward pressure on the prices that you're going to have to offer growers. I imagine the, the sheds are, are pretty empty. Is that the case for you and the growers you deal with?
0: Uh, We
4: have a pretty good carryover in Western Australia, a few months' worth at each site. Uh, In uh, South Australia and Victoria, things are a little bit more uh, more empty. There is plenty of uh, hay over there from last season, but it's very low-grade hay. It was heavily rained on. A lot of it wasn't fit for export. So uh, that hay still exists over there, but I don't think it's going to uh, find its way into the export markets. It's not really suitable for export.
1: So when you say, you know, up to about $300 a tonne you're offering for um, oats at the moment, that's not including the top up. But when when's the, when that does come through, is it sort of the mid 300 range per tonne you're thinking for oats for hay?
4: Ours will be for the for the top price and, and, and around about mid, mid $300 it will be.
1: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, you know, because the, the price for harvested oats sitting at $425 a tonne, but um, obviously when you're cutting that hay, uh, cutting that those oats for hay, there's a lot more yield there. So you're actually uh, very often coming out in front despite that $425 a tonne for oats.
4: Yeah, I think people have to do the calculations. Uh, we'd very much like to talk to people who have uh, grain crops that might be thinking about cutting for hay. We've had a few contractors already. I think if you do the numbers uh, at that sort of level and, uh, versus and, uh, maybe two and a half, three tonnes of grain versus five or six tonnes of hay, I think it, uh, it spells out that it's, uh, it's a pretty good deal.
1: Are you tentative at all about the first shipment after being shut out for basically a couple of years?
4: Not really, because uh, three companies have been exporting to China right the way through. Their licences um, hadn't expired. They don't run out till later this year, and they were shipping without any problems. So I don't, I don't think there's going to be any issues. But we won't be the first to ship back in there. I'm sure some of the competitors will get in there before we do.
1: Great to talk to you, Munro. Thank you. Thanks, Melinda. Munro Patchett, he is the CEO of Gilmac, which is Australia's largest hay exporter. This is The Country Hour on the ABC right across WA and on the ABC Listen app. Eighteen past twelve. Staying with news out of China, because it looks like pig numbers in China have returned to pre-African swine fever times. An outbreak of the highly contagious disease in 2018 saw millions of pigs die and the Chinese pork industry decimated. However, Tim Jackson, a global supply chain analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, says we may never know the full impact of the disease.
5: Over the period where African swine um, fever was really affecting Chinese production, there were lots of changes in import markets and and consumption in China and all of that. So we'll never know what their consumption landscape would have looked like without it. But we do know fairly straightforwardly that when ASF came into China, the effect was an immediate, substantial and long-lasting a decline in the hog herd, and a corresponding decline in production, which has persisted for several years. And even now, their production is only getting back close to levels that it was pre-ASF, which means that there were yeah, several years where consumption was really down, and particularly in 2019, that expressed itself through really, really substantial increases in imports. If
6: China has recovered its herd numbers,
5: what does that
6: mean for domestic prices for pork in China?
5: Well, it means that uh, prices for pork in China have come down. We know that this had happened over 2019 and for some of 2020. Kind of prices for Chinese consumers of pork were in some cases higher than they were for beef, which is very unusual in the Chinese context. Um, that's now reversed and it's gone back to being relatively similar in price to what it was prior to ASF, while some of the other proteins have kind of gone back to closer to what they were pre-ASF as well.
6: Does this mean that the Chinese consumer has regained some confidence in buying their domestic product?
5: What we do know is that over that period, consumers in China started consuming considerably more alternate proteins. So just to look at it between 2012 and 2022, overall, kind of protein consumption in China went up by about 12%, but for sheep meat, that was 31%, and for beef and veal, that was 61%. So we can say fairly comfortably... That, regardless of what Chinese consumers think or their confidence in pork, they're definitely more interested in and eating more beef and sheep meat.
6: Is there a change in the makeup of the protein market going from Australia into China? Are different meats now in demand than what used to be?
5: What's really, really striking from prior to the ASF outbreak to now is the size and volume of the market in general. So there have been very, very substantial increases in beef exports into China. In particular, there's been the development of a large uh, market for Australian mutton. So in the year-to-date so far, China is the largest uh, mutton market, which certainly wasn't true prior to ASF in China. Now, that's partially got to do with the demand for alternate proteins after ASF was found in China, but it's also related to, yeah, general economic growth and increasing... Desire on Chinese consumers to try new foods and eat things that they like.
1: Tim Jackson from Meat and Livestock Australia speaking to Karen Hunt. 22 past 12.
5: This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: Shortly you'll be off to the Kimberley where. Some of that property is being cleared that I mentioned a moment ago. It used to have valuable sandalwood trees on it, but those trees are being cleared right now and we'll catch up with Kimberley Rural reporter Alice Marshall in just a moment or two. First, though, the energy industry is concerned that yesterday's federal court ruling against Woodside's seismic blasting plans will undermine confidence in regulatory processes. Now, this is related to Woodside's planned Scarborough gas development, and the federal court has ruled the company's approvals for seismic blasting were invalid. The gas giant had received seismic testing approval from the offshore regulator, but that approval was challenged by traditional custodian Raylene Cooper, who argued she'd not been properly consulted. Independent energy analyst Jeanette Roberts says it's highly likely this decision will have implications beyond Woodside.
7: Well it's not just going to be Woodside, it's going to be um, their contractors and subcontractors and suppliers and um, the communities and families of people that are involved in that. But the the main issue is the uncertainty about when um, they might be able to resume the, the seismic and the um, impact on the project.
8: And what are
9: those direct impacts going to be? Is it going to be a loss of jobs? uh, uh, Is it going to be a high cost to these companies?
7: We don't really know yet. It's still too early to say. Um, This is one element in a very, very complex project, but it's still a matter of looking at what other activities can be progressed and how best to optimise project delivery.
9: Last time we spoke, Jeanette, you mentioned how these projects are so interconnected and, and a lot of elements do rely on other elements of the project. What's Woodside potentially going to be doing to address this concern right now?
7: Um, so they'll almost certainly be going through the detailed project plans with a fine-tooth comb and trying to work out what activities that are, can be progressed without this seismic work um, being undertaken, um, what activities are, precursor, are those for which this is a precursor, and trying to work out how best they can move forward.
9: The knockback potentially means there's going to be another few years added onto the project, especially this aspect of the project uh, is that potentially going to have a pronounced impact in investment in the region?
7: But there's no doubt that this increases Australia's sovereign risk. Um, So compared with other international destinations, Australia has been relatively expensive uh, traditionally, but international investors have traditionally paid that extra premium for um, certainty in their investment and certainty in, in their project delivery. And that certainty has been chipped away Uh, by a number of factors over the past few years. And this is just another nail in the coffin, really.
1: Independent Energy Analyst Jeanette Roberts with Charlie Mills. 25 past 12 here on the Country Hour and hundreds of hectares of once valuable sanderwood trees are probably going to be bulldozed in the Kimberley. And that's because the property in Cunanara's Ord Valley has just been bought by Northern Australia cattle identity Sterling Buntine. Kimberley Rural reporter Alice Marshall is at the property now. Alice, what's going on?
9: Afternoon, Belinda. Yeah, I'm standing here, out here on Ord Irrigation Stage 1 out on Saddle Road, just 15 minutes out of Kununurra, and I'm looking at what is now Sandalwood Land, owned by Quintus, and they've got a whole heap of young trees, 363 hectares of young trees, just under a year old. They're about a metre or so high, maybe a little bit higher, and... They've recently, as you mentioned, been bought by Sterling Buntine, who is not known for sandalwood. And industry sources tell the ABC that um, he's set to clear those trees and mulch those trees and make way for
1: irrigated broadacre cropping country. Sorry, that big truck just went by. What's he going to do for irrigated? What was it, Alice? <laughs> Sorry, he's making way for irrigated broadacre cropping country. Ah, uh-huh. so what do we know about Sterling Buntine? And you know, he's obviously um, got some ideas for the property. What do you know?
9: Yeah, so I think the name Sterling Buntine would stand out to a lot of people across the north of Australia. He's a big cattle identity up here, and and also a bit of a, a land trader he's from the Kimberley originally and he actually operates all of his business out of Bedford Down Station down near Halls Creek. He also owns Lissadel Station and a couple of places in the Northern Territory near the Barclay and as well as places in North Queensland and Central Queensland. At one stage, he had up to 2.5 million hectares of country. He was also cropping up in the news in about 2016 when he was one of four different members to make a bid for the Kidman & Co pastoral property portfolio he made a well together they made a 385 million dollar bid that was ultimately unsuccessful for those Kidman properties but he is at the end of the day a cattleman.
1: Now those sandalwood trees were worth a lot of money so what's happened to the market?
9: Well as we heard on the Country Hour just a month ago actually when we were discussing another Quintus sale that sale was around 500 hectares of Quintus Sandalwood property in Ord Stage 2, so also here in the Ord Valley, and that went to Ron Greentree, who was once Australia's largest wheat grower. Just for context of price, he paid around $7.5 million for 500 hectares, so only about 100 hectares more than what we're talking about here with Sterling Buntine. But what we heard then from CEO of Quintus, Richard Henfrey, when he spoke about that sale, was that the sandalwood market has dropped significantly in the past three years that he's been in the, in the role. He said it had dropped 50% in three years. And we also have a report that Quintus gave their shareholders back in June that said Indian sandalwood oil prices have fallen to their lowest level ever with, quote, little demand for the wood and oil globally. So that's the context of this sandalwood market. We did, however, see a bit of... Um, a vote of confidence from Quintus last year when they planted these trees that I'm looking at. They planted them just under 200,000 sandal Indian sandalwood trees and just under 500,000 host trees. So that was a vote of confidence from from the company. One that um that's ultimately being left unfinished.
1: Now, do you know if Quintus plans to sell off any more land?
9: It does seem like they do. As we touched on before, this is the second Quintus sale in the Ord Valley in just a few months. And in a statement given to the ABC, a spokesperson spokesperson from Quintus said, the company is transitioning from its traditional capital intensive set and forget land ownership model to a more dynamic model where real estate in sandalwood growing areas is trading in and out. This will be done according to the company's own plantations requirements the requirements of its customers and the macro factors affecting real estate values. Now, that's a a bit of a wordy statement, but we do hear from industry sources that Quintus are open to
1: offers. So, any idea what Sterling Buntine plans to do with the bulldozed wood?
9: Well, we haven't been able to get hold of Sterling Buntine himself, so ultimately the answer to that is no. There are a couple of places up here in Coninurra that would love mulched sandalwood wood for compost for different crops grown in the Kimberley but ultimately we don't know we do know that he is very much sorry another big truck very much looking forward to the end process which is a beautiful 360 hectares of clear black soil ready to plant crops like cotton corn chia stuff like that
1: It seems like such a a waste of a resource though, doesn't it?
9: It is if you look at it in the way that the trees are only 12 months old and it takes about 15 years for an Indian sandalwood tree to be ready to be harvested. So in that sense, it's a huge waste when you look at the number of trees that are getting chopped down. But if you look at it over the prosperity of the ord in the long term, a crop like cotton will be coming off year after year And it is producing not only a fibre that we wear obviously but also up here the most valuable resource in a crop like cotton is the cattle seed is the cotton seed that will be fed to cattle so when you look at the productivity of crops like cotton and even corn that's also fed like fed to cattle it'll be coming off a lot more regularly and and doing a lot more to sustain the local industry
1: Alice, thank you so much for the update. Um, I'll let you get back. It is a busy road there. There's a lot of traffic going by. I'll let you get back to it. Thank you for the update. No worries. Alice Marshall reporting in from the Kimberley with the news today that it looks like hundreds of hectares of once valuable sandalwood trees are probably going to be bulldozed in the Kimberley and the reason is that the property in Kununurra's Ord Valley has just been bought by Northern Australia Cattle Identity sterling buntine
10: this is the country hour and it's 28 to 1 time for an update from the newsroom Thank you, Belinda. In the headlines, a 55-year-old man has been remanded in custody after appearing in the Perth Magistrate's Court accused of stalking and attempting to murder the sister of federal MP Kate Cheney. Christopher Bernard Healy is alleged to have gone to the North Perth medical practice where Anna Cheney worked and attacked her with an axe. Bystanders intervened, including one of Dr Cheney's patients, and managed to detain him. The federal government has announced it will establish a task force to coordinate a response to the Disability Royal Commission's report released today. The commission has published 222 recommendations following its investigation into the lives of people with disability. And Brisbane says it doesn't believe playing the AFL Grand Final at the MCG favours a Victorian-based team ahead of tomorrow's clash against Collingwood. In the more than 100 years of the AFL and VFL, the Grand Final has only been played outside of Victoria twice, both due to the pandemic. Uh, More news at one.
1: Thank you so much for the update. I appreciate that. It's 27 to one here on the Country Hour. Uh, Still to come off to see what happened in the wool market this week with Danny Burgett. He'll be along just before the news at one o'clock today. The market down a little bit. Danny with all the details before one. And we'll also tell you about that company that's just picked up a, a grant to help it buy some equipment to process some fruit waste into alcoholic drinks. We'll get to that shortly. First, though, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Bob Tarr is with you this afternoon. Bob, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. It looks like the temperatures are down, well, significantly on what they were middle of the week.
11: Uh, yeah, so for the most part across the Southwest Land Division, it is significantly cooler. The exception to that is over far eastern parts. So, uh, Southern Cross currently uh, close to 35 degrees. Uh, and salmon gum similar so uh, far eastern and southeastern parts still quite warm and it is, it is still warm through much of the wheat belt even uh, somewhere like uh, Tamman and and close to 30 degrees so uh, certainly above normal for this time of year but um, and also in inland parts of the Midwest into the uh, low 30s right now but uh, yeah certainly over coastal parts and um, and over the southwest corner uh, much cooler than it, it had been Uh I think all in all we had uh, uh, 20 records, 20 September records were broken on Wednesday, uh, and again uh, 13 on Thursday, including some places, Dao Wallinu, for example, that broke the September record on Wednesday and then broke it right again on Thursday. So uh, we could see some more September records fall today through uh, parts of the southeast Pilbara, the eastern uh, Gascoigne and the gold fields as well as uh, around the Salmon Gums area uh, but then should clear away as we go into the weekend.
1: All right let's take a look at the weekend and beyond because there does look like there's a little bit of rain about some parts of the southwest land division to come.
11: Yeah so we have a so starting with today uh, there is a um, trough that's moving eastward and that is separating that uh, somewhat cooler air from the Uh, very hot air, and uh, we could see some high-based thunderstorms from the uh, gold fields down through the uh, southeast coastal district, uh, mainly through the inland areas from Esperance. Uh, Not going to see much rainfall with those, so there is some risk of dry lightning as well as some strong wind gusts with that. Uh, That should start to contract away to the east tomorrow. There is going to be a weak front moving across the southwest corner. Could see uh, maybe uh, up to about two or three mils down across the southwest coast, but all in all, not going to see much rainfall from that front as it washes out. And then on uh, Sunday, we'll see an increasing uh, west-to-northwesterly flow ahead of a much stronger cold front. The front's not really going to bring a whole lot of rain with it. It is going to be fairly windy. Uh, At this stage, it looks like probably not quite reaching the criteria for a severe weather warning, but uh, certainly is going to bring a cooler air mass across much of the state. So that front will reach the southwest corner of the state during uh, probably Sunday evening, but uh, certainly showers increasing out ahead of it over the southwest on Sunday afternoon, Uh, and then pretty quickly sweeping eastward through the remainder of the southwest land division during Sunday night and Monday morning. Uh, We could see some uh, small hail about the south coast, certainly feeling much colder, so some places that were close to 30 in the southwest will probably only top out around 13 on uh, Monday, so a real big cool change behind this front. Uh, But the rainfall totals don't look especially high, so down across the uh, far southwest coast, could see up to about 15 to 20 mils, uh, and also up into the Scarp inland from Bonbury, uh, but further to the north, uh, not going to see too much rain. Uh, maybe across the Midwest and the Wheatbelt, uh, one or two mils, uh, maybe up to three mils uh, in a couple spots, but uh, unfortunately not going to see a whole lot of rainfall penetrating into those areas. Uh, highest Uh, rainfall amounts for the uh, main ag areas would be down the southwest where we'll see probably on average about 5 to 10 mils, uh, maybe up to 15 mils. And then uh, also the uh, southern and western parts of the Great Southern could see about 5 to 10 mils from that front. Uh, But like I said, the main real impact from that front is just that Uh, quite substantial cool change Uh, and a few showers continuing about the south coast uh, and the lower west coast on Tuesday uh, before a pretty strong ridge of high pressure builds through so we won't see uh, much in the way of rainfall maybe the odd shower about the south coast but otherwise dry weather expected from uh, Wednesday through to Friday with a uh, significant warming trend so uh, back into the 30s across northern eastern parts of the southwestland division by Friday.
1: And what can you say for northern and eastern parts Bob?
11: Yeah, so northern parts, we had some uh, thunderstorms that uh, developed over the Kimberley yesterday, pretty early in the season for that, but uh, from around Broome and uh, Derby area down through uh, pretty close to Fitzroy Crossing. Uh, for the most part, those are not going to be occurring today. There's a little bit drier air through that region, but there is a slight chance across the uh, far northwest uh, remote areas up around the Mitchell Plateau that we could see uh, isolated shower, thunderstorm uh, from today right through the weekend. Those will be pretty short-lived in the uh, afternoons if anything does occur. Otherwise, just some areas of fog uh, about the uh, Kimberley, the northwest Kimberley and the uh, far eastern Pilbara Uh, coastal and inland adjacent areas uh, each day uh, for the next two or three days before that burns off. It has been quite hot through the Pilbara. We've had some uh, September records broken through that region. Uh, But we will have a cooler change starting uh, mainly across western parts tomorrow, but then uh, extending through inland parts on Sunday and uh, probably especially more so on Monday. Uh, Some fresh and gusty winds uh, extending up into northern parts, so fire dangers will start to increase as we go out towards about Wednesday, Thursday of next week, with a pretty significant uh, southeasterly surge as that um, high pressure ridge builds in through the region. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention: the uh, in terms of a frost perspective, uh, which I know is uh, often pretty sensitive this time of year. The latest figures um, for the um, Southwest Land Division, the the Wheat Belt, and the Great Southern, uh, on average, on uh, Monday night and Tuesday night, look to be about one or two degrees above uh, where they were yesterday. So uh, I think the coverage of frost at this stage looks less likely than it did, and then um, maybe about two to four degrees higher on uh, Wednesday night. So uh, I suppose that's a bit of good news, is that um, the risk of a significant frost looks uh, less likely at this stage um, during the early part of next week, Uh, and and those temperatures just don't look like they're going to get quite as cold. So that's a bit of good news.
1: Mm, Where were those areas?
11: Uh, so, basically, from the southern part of the wheat belt right through the um, great southern that 's where we were seeing the coldest temperatures and, and still the coldest temperatures uh, on the latest models. But, like I said, it looks like on average about one or two degrees warmer so so the coldest spot's only getting down to about two or three instead of uh, some of the temperatures that we were seeing yesterday, which were probably a little bit closer to freezing
1: Oh, mm, some good news all right, warnings today.
11: Uh, Yeah, so we just have um, some coastal warnings. Uh, Today's coastal warning is up along the Ningaloo Coast and then uh, Lewin Coast, Albany Coast and Euclid Coast for tomorrow.
1: Thanks so much, Bob. Appreciate that. 19 to 1. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, the only region to get any rain at all was the Kimberley and the only spot to record five mils or more. Well, three spots. Derby Arrow, 5, Theta, 14 and Yampy Sound had seven. We'll get to the wool market details shortly and you'll also meet this year's WA Rural Ambassador who was named at the Perth Royal Show this week. First though, a Midwest spirit distilling company has just been awarded a regional economic development grant for $140,000 to help it buy equipment to process horticultural fruit waste into alcoholic drinks. Cody Palmer is the distiller at the Dongara-based Illegal Tender Rum Company and says they want to source second-grade fruit from the Gascoyne.
2: Predominantly, a lot of those funds are going to go to the purchase of equipment that will help us turn, I guess, produce from um, particularly the Gascoigne area that may not end up on a shelf uh, mainly because of the way it looks or it presents um, and turning that into a hard cider or uh, I guess an additive for, for any of our spirit pro- uh, products as well as a value add. Um, it also gives us the ability to build um, within our new premise, we're building a uh, sell it all component that we call a marketplace that allows uh, local producers that may not have the opportunity to show their wares everywhere. Our aim is to turn our new premise into a bit of a hub where they're not just coming to have a drink or or have food, they're coming to purchase local products and we're trying to really give them a space and a platform to to show their wares and what the Midwest can actually produce.
9: What sort of fruit or waste produce are you hoping to value add?
2: I guess the products that I'm really looking forward to, if we can get them, uh, we're obviously still working with industry up there you know, we're talking about being able to use the equipment that the Reds has given us to, to juice mangoes, potentially, you know, turn bananas into a product as well, any sort of um, ground uh, fruit or vegetable as well, so, you know, cucumber is a pretty good additive for a flavour component for gins as well, so it'll be seasonal and, and, and it'll be as much of a surprise as myself to what we get.
9: What can you do with bananas?
2: You can actually ferment bananas. Um, and, and distill uh, that beverage that you fermented and, and turn it into a, a vodka, a flavoured uh, vodka. Um, so yeah, bananas actually uh, have the ability to produce a fair bit of alcohol. So, you know, the opportunities for some of these, these products are pretty well endless. It just is a matter of our creativity and being able to, you know, have the cash flow to, to follow it through.
9: Have you established any relationship with growers?
2: Yes we are in talks uh, with the, the industry up there. Um, when we, we applied for this grant we did a lot of research up in that area with the local growers association and, and uh, trying to really nut out how we're going to get it to our premise. Obviously we, we're in Dongra, uh, they Uh, quite a way away, up to seven, eight hour drive. So uh, the freight component, trying to figure out the logistics in that aspect and really what's going to be available to us because we'll need a fair bit of it and we need to make it, yeah, the investment work on our end as well. So,
9: Yeah, what sort of volumes of produce that is not up to spec for supermarkets or for regular markets, what sort of volume is there?
2: The last time we were there. The, the, I mean, the volume is in, in in excess of what we're able to process with the equipment that we've got. We've um, with the grant, we've um, we've managed to get a um, a 600 liter brew kit, um, and that will predominantly be for trials and and on site at the start. And once we really nut out exactly how we can get the the processes working, then maybe we can take in a, a lot more. We unfortunately might not put a dent in what's being left uh, at this point but we're looking forward to to growing in that space and really you know turning it from a niche uh, avenue to, to you know we could streamline this and make it a future-proof production asset to our premise.
9: What happens with that produce now?
2: I would say a majority of it gets uh, turned into compost made into fertilizers uh, or just left uh, to fertilize the tree for the next season unfortunately. A lot of it um, there 's no economical benefit for the for the grower to or incentive for them to move it, so hopefully we can give them some sort of outlet. Um, we can go up there i 'll be happy to go up there and pick it myself to be honest.
1: Cody Palmer is the director and distiller at a legal tender rum company, and he was speaking to Lucinda Jose. fourteen past twelve A Queensland grazing couple has just broken the record for the largest allocation of Australian carbon credit units awarded to an individual soil carbon project. Seven years ago, Carly and Grant Burnham started transitioning their 5,200 hectare property to regenerative practices by subdividing paddocks, shortening grazing periods and adding more water points. Their beef business is now carbon negative. For every tonne of livestock carried, 6.6 tonnes of carbon is sequestered, even in tough years. It's generated almost 95,000 accus. But Grant says it's business as usual at the farm.
8: We didn't go into it chasing a huge amount of carbon credits, but the research in these projects has show that it's possible and across a you know, trying five year period. So we got the second measurements done in. 2021, and um, yeah, we were able to sequester a fair amount of carbon um, deep into the landscape, yeah, and some of those years were quite dry. We had sort of three out of five of those years that were trying as far as um, drought situations. we got a few other challenges, such as dieback, pasture dieback, mm-hmm. in which a lot of people in the central Queensland area are experiencing, and um, other projects who we worked alongside of had also had bushfires and other challenges also. So it's shown that good grazing management practices can really help, you know, increase the resilience of of any business.
10: Well, yeah, I mean, at a time when the broader meat and livestock industry is is reassessing its own carbon neutrality targets, you're not carbon neutral, you're carbon negative. What does that mean?
8: Yeah, it just means that livestock can play a huge part in... um, this whole dilemma that we find ourselves in for so long. Grazing livestock and, you know, ruminants have been blamed and part of the issue with emissions. So now to see that under a good grazing management and planned grazing situations, it can be a huge part of the solution. It's a really exciting thing for agriculture. I I think it's great. And, yeah, looking forward to working with people to hopefully help it on the border. Scale.
10: And what kind of performance have you seen in in the cattle through these changes over the years? Overall,
8: it's been a positive impact on the on the outcomes of our of our beef production system. You know, sometimes when you're changing grazing management into most operations, you you might see uh, some negative impacts on on cattle performance. But overall, we've been able to run a lot more livestock on the same amount of land know average or less than average rainfall events but it it still means that we've got to adjust our docking rates and carrying capacities through those tough years that that's the main focus you know just look at the health of the land more so than than how many cattle you can run our main focus is to give back to the land more than we take each year so um you know carbon's only one part of a much bigger process in looking after the health of and natural capital like it, it's it's a now seeing that it's a measurable component, one of a very important component of natural capital, and yeah, just being able to measure that and seeing that increase—that's the most important part for us.
10: And now that you've got those accues, what, what will you do with them?
8: It's been a long way to getting up, getting to this point. So um, we haven't really, really put a lot of focus on on what we're going to do with them, or but we're looking to partner with people that have equally aligned values as us. With the environment, I think there's a lot of opportunities to come out, whether it be you're relinquishing some of them for certain parts of our business and opening better marketing opportunities, certainly exploring a lot of options at the moment, but but looking to partner with people with, with similar values to ours.
10: Do you think that will go some way to helping inform people in the cities and consumers about what the actual impact on the environment is from these kinds of operations?
8: yeah well, I think we're in a really blessed position to be food producers and land custodians so the opportunity to connect the end consumer with the producer here and you know, providing beautiful healthy food from a healthy environment and and having consumers eat that produce knowing that they're contributing to the improvement of an environment I think's been so much negative news about food being being negative on the environment but this is an opportunity to turn that right around so um, yeah I, I just love the opportunity to be connected to the consumer on multiple levels
1: Grant Burnham from Bonny Doon at Monto, 500 kilometres north of Brisbane, and he was speaking to Kelly Buchanan. The company handling their project is Carbon Link, and Chairman Dr Terry McCosker says it's created a new Australian benchmark for soil carbon farming. He says they not only removed a substantial amount of CO2 from the atmosphere and their beef is now carbon negative to the tune of 6.6 tonnes of CO2 buried for every tonne of livestock carried. So far, the project has generated almost 95,000 ACUs. So today, the ACU generic spot price is $30.25. So those ACUs are currently worth almost $2.9 million. Eight minutes to one. And if you're into cattle... One of the big events at this week's Perth Royal Show has been the interbreed beef class competition. The judges' difficult job is to rate cattle from four major breeds. Then they select the winning breed.
3: Again, uh, we're
4: judging pairs out here and not only are we looking for a pair of terrific individuals in their own right, but we're looking for a pair of individuals that fit together. That, that look like the breed should, that display their breed character, that display all the attributes that the beef industry is looking for. And we ended up, I think, probably unanimously with these top four, maybe not in the same order, but I think they were our top four. So congratulations to all
11: the exhibitors there. I think if we go through this black pair up the front here, just a tremendously sound, easy-doing set of, set of cattle here. a young bull that's just too- is In no
0: particular there, order. order the limousin stud, if you'd like to walk forward, Pat and Penny Turpstra, beautiful big cow, uh, big heifer, rather, and, and, and big uh the Angus. The, the next team to be called forward, uh, Charolais. And there are, two, there are two exhibitors, or two contributors to this team uh, Venture On uh, and Liberty. So uh, that's a great first for them as well. And, uh, and then, the, and then, the final uh, team to be pulled forward will be the Seminole, and, and there are two exhibitors here as well. So that's uh, so that's that's
1: excellent.
4: I think uh, four tremendous pairs, and uh, certainly not unanimous again. But
11: our champion pair for this year goes to the Sharlins.
1: the white charolet pair venture on and liberty judge best in the interbreed beef class well done six minutes to one in other news from the show a southwest vegetable grower has been named wa's rural ambassador lauren Patani farms at mile up just north of bunbury and says she was honored to receive the award so I'm
6: a vegetable farmer from Mylar, so I work uh, on my family business. So we produce uh, obviously vegetables. We do carrots, potatoes, onions and broccoli. And I was a member of the Brunswick Agricultural Society. So we hadn't had an entry for a very long time, though I might not like saying this, but there's not many young people involved with the Brunswick Agricultural Society at the moment. So there's a couple of us now. So they were really keen to have someone represent them in the rural ambassador program. So they initially put my name up and so I did the local judging and I competed in Waruna and I won that. And then that's when I went to the state judging at the Royal Show this week.
9: Oh, amazing. And you've got you do have your Brunswick show coming up. Can you tell me a bit about that?
6: Yeah, so we do it's on the twenty eighth of October this year. Uh, So uh, our theme this year is farm to fridge. So pretty much we want to promote all of our agricultural industries in our area. We're really lucky in the sense that we have a really diverse range of agricultural industries from horticulture to uh, beef and livestock to viticulture to citrus. So there's all sorts of different industries right on our doorsteps. So just promoting those. And educating people on how how their food gets onto their dinner plates from the farm.
1: Myla, vegetable grower and 2023 WA Rural Ambassador Lauren Patani, speaking to Sophie Johnson. And Lauren represented the Brunswick Agricultural Society and was up against four representatives. From other societies across the state. Well done. Four minutes to one to the wool market, which was down this week. The eastern market indicator down nine cents to close at 1,135 cents a kilogram clean. And the western market indicator is down 10 cents to close at 1,262 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what do you make of this week's market?
0: Yeah, we had a um, it did finish on a positive tone, which was good. The last centre trading Fremantle on the Thursday this week because of the long weekend, we actually had gains across all microns for merino types, which was a good way to finish the week. Over the two days in Fremantle, 18 microns plus 10 to close at 14.90, 19s were off five closing at 13.95, 20s, 21s, 22s all remain par for the week, up five one day, back five the next. Finishing 20s at 13.05, 21s at 12.75 and 22 at 12.45. Pieces and Bellies, cheaper on the first day, but a positive uh, result again on the second day on the Thursday. They were all in positive territory, fine, mediums and the VM types, which is good to see. Locks, 35 cheaper for the week, so pretty much have lost the gains of the previous fortnight. Crutchings, firm on the first day, fell 20 on the second day, as did stains. Lambs, again this week, the Shining Light remained fully firm through the through the two days. So overall, a good way to finish the market on the Thursday, but a slightly cheaper result overall.
1: Who was buying, Danny?
0: No surprises. Tech Wool, 15% of Merino Fleece Wool on the market. Endeavour Wool, 13.5%. TNU, good to see them back in the top three at 12.5%. And PJ Morris, who is always there, in about to ten and a half percent. Again, interesting to note: Tech Wool, largest buyer in the skirtings, and Tech Wool, largest buyer in the oddments. So again, Tech Wool come back into the market with capital last week and um, have continued this week, which is always a good thing for the wool market.
1: And what's in store for next week?
0: Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, forty-two thousand one hundred bales on the market. The four-week forecast release yesterday shows pretty much will remain around the forty-thousand bale mark. But I would suggest if we follow previous years, which we tend to do with offerings, in four weeks' time we'll see those offerings start to hit fifty fifty five thousand, and I think that will be a very challenging result for the wool market just given the demand we've seen over the previous three to four months.
1: Danny, thank you for going through those details a minute away from the news at one. Earlier in the hour you heard about the Midwest Spirit distilling Company that's just been awarded a regional economic development grant for one hundred and forty thousand dollars to help it buy some equipment to process horticultural fruit waste into alcoholic drinks. This text from Peter says, I'm a livestock producer. I'm very glad for the fruit growers. They've got this opportunity to sell second grade fruit. I do hope the distiller does really well with that grant money. I can't wait for the WA Ag Minister to announce grant money for the struggling sheep market to develop new meat and wool markets and then build and run five or six new abattoirs. If there's such a huge opportunity, they can be government-owned until they've made their money back. Hope I don't sound too cynical, says Peter. Well, there is some support from the WA government, Peter. The Premier and State Ag Minister issued a press release for the sheep industry today saying that it supports sheep farmers impacted by challenging seasonal and industry conditions through a range of free resources. It points to Deep Herd's website for seasonal information, advice and tools... And also some support services, counseling services, etc. News time, one o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.